Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Just another day in a dystopian city. It's episode 220 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. The reason I say that is, is that we're going to Mega City One this week, talking to writer Mark Russell about Judge Dredd Under Siege, a limited series. Got Max Dunbar in the art there. It's been a great series so far. Going to dive into that and a bunch of other stuff with him as well. And of course, getting closer to San Diego Comic Con 2018, and going to be bringing you all kinds of great coverage. As we did last year, make sure you're following us on social media. I'll give you that information out at the end of the show. And visit our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. It's been fully redone. Some great articles up there right now, like my spoiler-free review of Luke Cage Season 2. A little bit of something that I think is going to be happening on DC's Legends of Tomorrow next year. And a whole bunch of other stuff at downandnerdypodcast.com. Let's get right to it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Cass Anvar, Alex Kamal from The Expanse, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Stay tuned. Fire up the laptop, the tablet, or drag out that long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and another special $1 number zero issue from Dynamite Comics is coming out called Project Superpowers Number Zero. That name should sound familiar. It's written by Rob Williams, Sergio Davilia on the art. Felidius on the color, Simon Bolin on the letters, and Francesco Mattina doing the great, great cover. Now, this is the 10th anniversary of the series. It's been almost since, what, 2010, since the last volume of Project Superpowers was actually published. So, I will say that for new readers, while this is a good introduction to the characters, you might feel a li- just a little bit lost in this issue, but the story centers around Green Llama, who sort of has magical powers, in case you don't know, and the death-defying devil. They say power is unknown in this issue, so I'll just kind of leave it at that. Now, they kind of come together in a very strange way in this issue, and that sort of leads to a flashback to the past where we see a lot of familiar heroes from Project Superpowers. If you if you already know who they are, if you don't, you kind of get a tease of what they look like and what some of the powers might be. And again, I'm going to let you read the issue to to go ahead and find this out for yourself. Now, the key to this new story appears to be the spirit of the American flag. That is not like a mantra. That's an actual character that's in this book. As a matter of fact, if you read the previous uh, Project Superpowers, you'll see that the spirit of the American flag actually plays prominently in that story. Now, we do get to find out something very important about the flag and the future of of that character. And that could be the key to this entire new story. And that is the most important part, I think, of this kind of reawakening of Project Superpowers. Is It's that little bit of a detail. And there's something else that happens when they travel back. Actually, they travel forward in time as well. 
and something happens there that's also going to be another key, I think, to the story and whether or not this universe is going to expand in this next set of stories. So, I mean, I'm wondering if at San Diego Comic-Con this year, if we'll find out more information about Project Superpowers, there's a good chance that we will. I will say this. The art is next level good. I mean, Sergio Davila and Felitas do a fantastic job on the art and the colors. I mean, man, it just jumps right off the page. You almost buy this book just for the art alone. It's really that good and detailed. Now, like I said before, new readers are going to have to do a little bit of research to really get invested in these characters. There's a lot of really cool designs and a lot of great ideas, but I mean, it's going to be hard to get fully invested if you're not really sure who these characters are based on this issue alone. There is a cool factor there, though, that I think is going to grab you a little bit because we are still talking about characters with superpowers here. It's a new superhero team to you if you weren't reading the series from before. So, and I mean, it's a dollar. The issue's a dollar, and it's a dollar for a reason. You know, you want it, you want to grab it and see what you think. And I certainly think it's worth at least that. So I'm going to give this a pickup. I will definitely see how this starts out now that we've gotten through the zero issue. And zero issues are always tough anyway. But this wasn't as much of an introduction to the characters as zero issues usually are. So I'm wondering where we're going to get, get taken from issue zero to issue one and how much information we're actually going to be given and maybe a little bit of backstory as well. Or are they just going to assume that, hey, you already know who this team is. You already read the comics from before. So you're going to need to know a little bit of that information. Here's something that I was really, really hoping would come back and Lion Forge came in and saved the day on May. That's right, May Volume 2, number one, is here. And you remember that we talked to Gene Ha a couple of years ago, actually, here on the show about May when it first came out, when the very first issue of May came out. And he's back doing the writing and the art. Wes Hartman on the colors, and then Xander Cannon doing the letters. Now, the story picks up right where Volume 1 left off. And now, this is where I'm going to get in just a little bit of spoiler territory here if you haven't read the first volume. Now, this is where Abby slash Annie, whatever she wants to call herself, and I'm going to be talking about that for probably this entire review. They run into Petra in the woods, and of course, there's definitely history, to say the least, between Abby slash Annie and Petra. Now, we get to learn what really went down with Abby slash Annie leaving or at least the perception of the people that she left behind. Because remember, from the first volume, again, a little bit of a spoiler for that, is that she was the queen of her people in this alternate dimension slash other land, however you want to describe it, that she left behind that is kind of at war right now. And there's one person in particular that gets especially agitated. And it looks like there's, and we find out later on in the issue, there's probably a really good reason for that, and actually, if you want to think about it, a couple of good reasons. And this, let's just say that this is someone that's very close to Petra for a very specific reason. And then after you get past that little bit of awkwardness and how that all went down, with not just with Petra, but with the with the people in general and how they felt about Abby slash Annie, we really get back to the story of her in May getting their dad back, but the plan isn't exactly coming together. There's they're fighting, they're arguing as to 
what the best way to go about this is. And there's a clash of personalities there between Abby. I'll call her Abby because that's what her sister calls her. Abby and May. There's really a clash of personalities there. You know, you've got you've got the bull and Abby who's just going to charge forward no matter what and duck the horns down and hope that gets the job done. And then you've got the more cerebral and the more caring and heartfelt May who just wants to make sure that the best plan comes together. Now, something happens along the way as they're trying to plan this out and decide where they're going to go that could have ended up a lot worse than it actually was. Then that's when the story takes a very interesting turn between the two sisters. And we don't know where the Monokov people are going to settle in all of this after everything that went down with their queen, Annie, that's what they call her, or at least that's what they called her, and then Abby to May. And, and then Abby slash Annie is kind of going through a bit of an identity crisis of her own in this issue. So as somebody who loved that first volume of May, I'm certainly all in on this one, so that's my personal opinion. There's just so much to like about this story, and it, it's such an easy read to me. And Gene Ha's art style is so unique and vibrant that it just makes me want to keep going. I feel like I'm looking at a high-end video game and I'm being told the story as I go, just like you often are in video games, but somebody else is at the controls and I am absolutely cool with that if it's Gene Ha. This is still a poll for me. It's been a poll for me from the very, very beginning of May. I think you need to add this to your poll box immediately if you haven't read Volume 1 yet. It is available. Go grab that, especially the Lineforge version. Because it actually has a little bit of an extended, you know, it's almost like the director's cut of May Volume 1, right? So if you want to go ahead and grab that, I would definitely recommend it. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, time to go to The Fallen Kingdom. My spoiler-filled review of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is B.D. Wong from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to once again hop on a helicopter or a very dangerous plane for some reason and head back to the world of the dinosaurs. It is my spoiler-filled review of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And again, I'm not going to go hugely into every little detail of the movie, but there are going to be a ton of spoilers from here on out, so just be ready for that. I will say this before I even get going into all of the details that I want to talk about here, is that I actually went into this movie... With very low expectations because it just didn't look like it was going to be something that was going to work for me. But it was better than I expected, actually. Of course, you've got Claire, who's played by Brace Dallas Howard, who wants to save the dinosaurs. And the government's trying to decide, are these animals that are worth worth saving? Because, you know, you have the volcano that's active on Isla Nublar and it's going to destroy all the dinosaurs and all this stuff. So then the government actually says, nope, not going to help them. Can't do that. You know, this is a corporation and they're not, and they were created and all of these other things. And, you know, I'm kind of really simplifying it, but that was the gist of it. But then you had one family that couldn't let it go. And that is the Lockwood family. Of course, Benjamin Lockwood played by James Cromwell. And then you have Eli, who is the guy that's managing his money, who's played by Rafe Spall. Now, Rafe Spall is the ends up being the villain of the movie, and he's really the dick of the entire movie. Because, you know, one thing this movie succeeded in doing was giving me a bunch of characters that I went, man, I hope that guy gets eaten by a dinosaur. We get a lot of that in this movie. You know how, remember the original Jurassic Park? The one guy that you didn't really like right off the bat was that lawyer guy, right? The guy that ends up getting eaten by the T-Rex 
and was one of the first ones to go in that movie, right? You didn't really like him. He was this squirming weasel guy, and he complained about everything. He was just annoying. You're like, man, I hope that guy gets eaten by a dinosaur. And he does. So you've got that a couple of different times, at least in this movie. I could go as high as three. But that's just my personal opinion. But he kind of talks Claire into not only going to the island to help save the dinosaurs for a reason that, you know, clearly isn't true, but she get he gets her to drag Owen along with them. Of course, Owen's character played by Chris Pratt to save Blue. And now it turns out Blue is the key to this entire thing. And then you've got Claire's team over at her over at her dinosaur preservation society that she's got going on you have franklin who's the it guy played by justice smith who i thought was hilarious throughout the entire movie i really really loved his character and daniel pinda who was who played zia who was kind of like the doctor in the wise ass of the group i could have seen a lot more of the two of their characters i wished we would have gotten more of them because i just loved the dynamic that they brought to that entire group especially the Zia character. I thought that she was one we could have seen a lot more. And actually, at the end of the movie, I thought, man, that was a character that really stood out and we did not get to see her enough. I actually felt the same way about Franklin, although I thought we got to see him quite a bit. And, you know, it was it would have been easy for them to be annoying, right? But instead, I felt the different way about it. I was like, man, they kind of did a great job. And it was funny because, you know, in so many of the movies, the kids have been the focus of the story, and there there was definitely a kid in this a little bit later on, but I'll get to that in just a second. But then you age this these characters up a bit now, and while you could still perceive them as kids, you know they're younger, but they're definitely not not young. And then you you bring them into the picture in this kind of teenage, early to mid twenties type of type of range, and it really changed the dynamic of the entire movie, right? So you weren't focusing on kids; you were kind of focusing on time on teenagers slash young adults and the adults. So I thought that that was an interesting change that they made in this movie. Now, of course, you fast forward to them actually bringing the dinosaurs back and you find out that the dick, Eli, is not only using these dinosaurs to be auctioned off as weapons to the highest bidder, but they're using, they want to use Blue to train their new creation. Yes, another new dinosaur. We had the Indominus Rex last time. You saw in the very beginning of the movie where they get the sample of the DNA from the Indominus Rex. And so they're going to combine the Raptor and the Indominus to create the Indoraptor. The ideas just keep getting worse, don't they? And nobody seems to learn anything. If there's one thing that's frustrating about these Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World movies, nobody seems to learn anything. And that's what actually, that, that is the crux of Dr. Ian Malcolm's argument. The few times that we actually get to see Jeff Goldblum... That's kind of the argument he's making. And it's, it's like, how do we not? How are we not learning from this after all this time? All these things that have gone wrong, and yet we're still up here talking about doing this. So the Indoraptor comes out, and is it cool? Yeah, it's cool. It's got you know, it's got like spiky type blackish yellow hair, right? And it's it's just it looks menacing, and it absolutely is. But I don't want to skip too far ahead here, because then you've got Mr. Moneybags. Toby Jones plays Mr. Eversall, who's the auctioneer guy and the guy that's bringing in all of these bad dudes to try and buy these dinosaurs. Again, another character was like, man, I really hope he gets eaten by a dinosaur at some point. But then who is the one behind all this? That's right. It's our guy, B.D. Wong, Dr. Wu, once again at the controls. You know, he skated away from Jurassic World, and now here he is 
showing up again, and he is the brains behind the whole thing. But but even he at this point is pumping the brakes and saying, look, we don't really have a whole lot here. We need to make sure we take the slow with the Indoraptor. We need to train this, this animal before we go ahead and try and do anything with it. Now, granted, he's still in the wrong. He's still doing the wrong thing for the absolute wrong reasons. So he's still evil incarnate. But at the same time, at least you've got somebody that's pushing back a little bit, right? Now, I mean, you go from, you know, how trusting are these are these dinosaurs going to be? Because you what you basically sent was an an animal, you know, poaching team to try and collect these dinosaurs, but bring them back alive, right? And you see that one poacher guy, I can't remember his name, but he's the guy, and I am going to skip ahead here because I cannot, I cannot not talk about this any longer. This idiot's collecting teeth for his necklace, right? I legitimately did a facepalm in the theater when he, he tranks the Indoraptor, right? When it all goes to hell and Chris Pratt and, and, and Bryce Dallas Howard's characters are escaping and it all goes to hell and everybody runs away. It's this dude in the Indoraptor in the room. The Indoraptor's still in the cage. He tranks it. And then he goes in there and it's like, oh, I'm just going to get a tooth. And then, the, and brilliant direction, by the way, you actually see that this dude does not close or latch the door to the cage behind him. I legitimately facepalmed going, oh, come on. And it's not, and that is not a knock on the makers of this movie, the writing direction, nothing. If anything, that is the brilliance of pointing out that I'm going to piss you off in this very moment and make you realize how stupid this character is by doing this. And how do you think that worked out? Right, exactly how you would think it would work out. Yeah, the guy gets eaten, no necklace for you, see you later. So that is one part of the movie where I was like, you got to be kidding me. Drove me insane. Now I want to talk about Maisie Lockwood, who is Benjamin Lockwood's granddaughter. She's kind of like, you see her in the background in the beginning of the movie, and her caretaker is is a woman named Iris. And basically the whole gist of that was we find out that, again, major spoiler here, that Maisie is nothing but a clone of her mother to get so Benjamin Lockwood could have his daughter back one more time. So you see that they use the same technology they used to recreate the dinosaurs to recreate Maisie, and she's a clone, and she grows attached to Owen and to Claire, and there's kind of a pseudo-parental relationship there, although we really don't know where that ends up, right? You kind of hope that Owen and Claire would take care of her, but we don't really know exactly where that goes. So I thought that that was an interesting little twist in the movie. It certainly added something. And what really this movie was about, I really thought it would be about the government and their role in arguing over whether or not these dinosaurs should be saved. And I thought that that will play a big role in things. But really what this ended up being about was the relationship between the Lockwood family and Benjamin Lockwood and John Hammond and how that relationship was and where it soured and why it soured and why this the events of this movie were taking place in the first place. And then you give me the whole corporate greed slash weapons trafficking aspect of the whole thing, other than people paying way too much for certain dinosaurs. I understand with the whole Endoraptor thing, because they showed you that example where, you know, you paint the target, that's what the that's the military term, where you take the laser gun and you point it to it and you press the button and that's what the Endoraptor is supposed to attack and they and it knows that for sure. So you attack that one area, and then it'll listen to you after that, and you're good to go. I understand playing millions of dollars for that, but you're going to pay millions of dollars for some 
random wild triceratops, right? Or, or the teenage Allosaurus, which is absolutely, these are absolutely untrained animals. So what are you going to do? Just unleash him in a room and think you could just go, come here, come here. No, no, you're not just going to be able to call him back like a dog. It's not going to happen. So they're just going to, you spent millions of dollars. You're going to use this, this dinosaur once, maybe twice. Then it's going to run off and just start killing things. So that, that was the thing that, that bugged me a little bit. Like, dude, you're spending tens of millions of dollars on something that you have no idea what you're really going to do with it. So when I thought there was going to be a lot of government involvement, it turns out that there really wasn't. Now, I do want to talk about the ending, though, before I wrap this up. And that is the whole decision of we saw that moment when they're leaving the island and everything's burning. and You see the brontosaurus up there. At least I think it was a brontosaurus or brachiosaurus that's standing there. And tears running down Claire's face. And everybody's upset because you're watching these animals die, the ones they didn't save on the island. That gutted me. Absolutely gutted me. My eyes are all welling up. I can barely see because I'm just I'm so upset in this moment. And then we get that moment again where you see the gas that's leaking into where these dinosaurs are being held. And they're dying. And Owen actually says, you know, we need to let them go. Can you re- Do you realize what's going to happen? If we let them out and then unbeknownst to nobody's watching the kid, another case, nobody's watching the kid and the kid makes arguably a mistake. You could say you understand where she comes from, but you also have to understand this. Maisie presses the button, lets the dinosaurs out. So the dinosaurs are basically in the world now. That's where we're at at the end of this movie. But you have have to understand something. And this goes for when I talked about the predator trailer not too long ago and the kid that makes that stupid decision. These are still kids. They're young kids, especially a kid like Maisie, who lives in a rich household with a caretaker. Her grandfather is kind of in and out because he's older and he's in poor health, right? So he's not really... There's nobody around to check this kid and really teach her a whole lot of right from wrong here. So, of course, she's going to follow her heart, follow her gut, and save these animals that she's grown to love. Over the years, of course, she's going to make that decision. So you see kind of dinosaurs running wild. Chris Pratt can't get Blue to stay. Blue ends up running off with like an understanding of, okay, you saved my life. I'm cool with you. I'm out of here. So we get to see all these dinosaurs take off. We get to see Eli get his at the end. That was definitely very, very satisfying. But now, you're again, you're automatically setting yourself up for a sequel here. But here's the other thing. Before I get to my final conclusion on this, how about... Once again, yeah, I'm talking to you, B.D. Wong. Once again, Dr. Wu kind of under the radar, grabs everything and flies right out the door, right? So he's the guy that gets away every single time. It's like how at the end of an animated series in the 80s, whether it was Transformers or Voltron or or Thundercats, whatever you want to pull out, 80s slash 90s. That the, the, the villain always gets away, right? And it's like, I'll get you next time, He-Man, and you never do. And, and that's how I feel about Dr. Wu. He always gets away and it's like, I'll get you next time, except he doesn't say that. But you understand what I'm saying, right? It's that he's the one, he's like the white whale, right? He's the one that, will, that always gets away. And Ahab will never track him down. Moby Dick reference, kids. Google it in case you've never read Moby Dick. That's what that was all about. Anyway, he's the one that's always getting away and the one that's always going to keep this cycle of the dinosaurs going. And that's when Dr. Ian Malcolm says towards the end of the movie, welcome to the Jurassic world, because now 
unbeknownst to anyone, by the way, except any, except the people in that room, that the dinosaurs are part of the world now. And I want to touch on the end credit stinger that happens. It's very much a stinger. It's not really much of a scene where you see the pterodactyls land in Las Vegas. So it looks like the next Jurassic World, at least part of it anyway, will be headed to Vegas. And you have to assume that the next movie is going to be trying to track all these animals down. And then again, we're also going to, once again, be at a crossroads of what do we do once we catch them? Do you kill them? Or do you just you do you find that reserve? Maybe there was that reserve that, that Eli talked about, whether that was real or not. Do we find that place for them and put them there? When you see that giant, you know, water dinosaur in that wave, though, that creeped me out so hard. That was crazy to me. And I didn't think this movie was very appropriate for younger kids anyway. Older kids, fine. But there were some parents with younger, younger kids in there. Like I'm talking like you know, like five to five to eight. I don't know. I think eight's probably the age. I'm not going to tell you how to parent your kids. I certainly wouldn't want to tell you to parent mine. Just, it's just a word of warning. If you haven't seen this movie yet, you're wondering if you should take your young kid to it. I'd probably wait a little bit longer, but I mean, other kids, yeah, there's some, you know, violent dinosaur eatings and stuff like that in this movie, but nothing too, too over the top. I didn't think it was all, all that overly scary. So I wouldn't worry about that too much, but I mean, other than that, yeah, there's some action sequences that are predictable. Yeah, there are some times where you're thinking, okay, yeah, they would have never survived that. You can't hold your breath that long, stuff like that. But then you have to just sit back and go, you know what? It's a movie. We need to stop trying to base some of these movies in reality. This is a movie where dinosaurs are roaming around because of, you know, the the mosquito DNA that was trapped in amber sort of thing. So, you know, realism not really steeped in it. I'm not saying it's not possible. Let's not go down that rabbit hole and get into that debate, okay? That's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm saying is is that we need to stop trying to base certain things in reality. It's still a movie. It's still entertainment. It is in no way, like, based on a true story or anything like that. So we've got to pump the brakes on certain things like that a little bit. So all in all, if I'm being honest, I enjoyed this a lot more than I expected to, and I really, really had low expectations for this movie. And I think because it's because I went in like that, it surprised me even more, and it made me appreciate the movie even more as well. So maybe that is why I'm to go. I'm going to go ahead and give this seven rolls to get away from a lava flow, so you jump over a log to save yourself out of ten. So in case that was a little bit too long for you, seven out of ten is what I'm giving Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. I, I got to say, I, as, a, as someone who liked the first Jurassic World movie, I know a lot of ple- people didn't. I kind of appreciate this for what it is, and I knew there'd be a lot of predictability involved, and maybe tempering my expectations helped me in reaching that conclusion. That's just how I feel about it. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tamin and my spoiler-filled review of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Up next, some nerd news to get to, and we'll get right to it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like DC Entertainment's going to be giving us a lot more reason to stay indoors because it's time for nerd news. And yes, the big announcement that came this week was details about the DC Universe streaming service launch. Huge announcement today. We'll be launching this fall. Looks like beta testing going to begin in August. You go to DCUniverse.com if you want to sign up to possibly be a beta tester. Now we have the previously announced originals, which which is, of course, Titans. Looks like that's going to be the first out of the gate. We have Young Justice Outsiders, which has been pushed to 2019. Doom Patrol looks like that will follow Titans. And then from there, we've got Swamp Thing and the Harley Quinn animated series that's going to be coming as well. Now, not only that, we know that the service will also include select comics. There's also a chance to connect with other fans in the DC community. You can shop exclusive merchandise on the service. And then there's the catalog titles. Now, this was the kicker for me for DC Universe. Okay, you're giving me great original programming. You already kind of hooked me there. You promised us that this was going to be different and innovative. Now, what are your catalog titles going to look like? Well, I'm not going to run through them all, but they do include... Some of the recent DC animated movies that we've loved here on the show, like Gotham by Gaslight, Flashpoint Paradox. They also go back to movies like Green Lantern First Flight and All-Star Superman. So you've got some older stuff on there as well. Movies, I mean, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Christopher Reeve Superman movies. Yeah, stuff that you might already have, but maybe... A few that you don't, because there's certainly a lot more than that. TV-wise, you've got, of course, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman, The Flash, the John Wesley Ship version, Birds of Prey, and Matt Ryan's Constantine. And then animation. You see Batman, the animated series on there. My ears perk up. Pretty sure I saw Super Friends on there as well, and a ton of Superman animated series stuff. Now, there was no price point listed, no specific release date, just saying fall, and it could be late fall. So, I mean, if you're beta testing in August... You're probably thinking, if I was a betting man, I would say in October, like right around when the CW shows for Arrow and Flash and stuff like that debut, I would say right around there, or maybe even the very end of September is when we might see DC Universe go ahead and launch. I got to tell you, 
as if I wasn't all in already, seeing the platform, I mean, you see the screenshots, we get that new look at Robin, by the way, from the Titan series, which is 100% legit. I mean, go to the go to our webpage, downandnerdypodcast.com, in the nerd news section, the article that I wrote about it, and some of the pictures on there, absolutely stunning. Everything about this service seems like it is an absolute win, and I like that it seems like DC and Warner Brothers really taking their time on this and making sure they get it right and not giving you garbage in the catalog either. I mean, this is good quality stuff that you're being given and the opportunity to read comics on multiple devices for free. So you're even getting a comics subscription that's thrown in there. So the question is, how much would you pay for this? I'm seeing a price point anywhere between $10 and $12 a month for this. And I don't know if there's going to be an option for ads or anything like that. You know how like CBS All Access does. You pay one price with ads, one price without ads, or Hulu does the same thing. I could see that possibly being worked in there. But I got to tell you, this is one that is so multifaceted that you could get more money than your traditional streaming service for something like this. But I have a feeling that it's going to launch at a lower price point because first of all, it kind of has to, doesn't it? It's still an unknown entity. And it is a very specific entity too because it's just... DC Entertainment, right? So not that that's not a popular enough brand because I was in on this the second they announced it with no information, being a DC fan. So they already had me there. But I mean, because it is still maybe a little bit of a niche, I think that you've got to start out at a lower price point or at least give a lower price point option. And I'll be very interested to find out what the subscriptions are going to be like once it first launched. You know, what's that first number going to be? The, the How many subscribers did they hit right away and are they and are we going to have subscribers that need to kind of test the waters a little bit too as well because i mean maybe not so sure about this some of the people are going to be so that is what's going on with dc universe but here's here's another story that when i saw it, i mean when when we first found out about the possibility of a morbius the living vampire movie from the spider-man universe in sony it was kind of like one of those things where you go haha okay yeah, that would be funny if that actually happens. And now it is absolutely 100% happening. As a matter of fact, Jared Leto is going to be attached to star as Michael Morbius himself. This news coming according to comicbook.com and other sources as well. Not only that, it looks like they have Daniel Espinosa, who directed Safe House, going to be attached to direct here. Now, this looks like it's going to be another anti-hero story. A lot of rumors as far as the plot and things like that are coming out, but it is going to follow at least the comic book origin anyway. Beyond that, going to be really hard to tell and get, until we get more details and getting closer to this thing really getting started. First thing I want to say is, maybe you were a huge fan of this character, and I totally understand if you're psyched for this, but I don't think we asked for this, did we? I mean, there are certain ways, there's so much you can do with the Spider-Man universe. And this is the route you go. That's the thing that kind of makes me shake my head a little bit. And it makes me wonder, with all due respect to Sony, is this their desperate attempt to use one character's assets to try and build their own Marvel Universe? You've got the MCU, and they're doing well. 20th Century Fox, which is going to be in the MCU here in, like, what, five minutes? That deal's pretty much done at this point, other than selling a few local sports stations, and you're good to go there. So you see what they have and you're like, I want that. It's like you're seeing what's on the other side and you want that for yourself. But the only asset that you have in this 
is Spider-Man, and that is a huge asset. There's a ton that you could do with that, and they're already doing it. Look what they're bringing to Comic-Con this year. You've got Venom. You've got Into the Spider-Verse with Miles Morales. There's any number of things that you could have done right away in the Spider-Man universe, and this is what you give me. Who's the villain going to be in this movie? Where is this going to go? Do you maybe you don't need think you don't need a villain? I I just don't see how you know you you know you say you could plaster the Mar, plaster the Marvel name on anything and it's going to work, right? People are going to go see it. I don't know. I think at what point are you really pushing whether or not someone wants to see a Morbius a living vampire movie or not? So I'm not sure that this is a super idea. Obviously, this could turn out to be an excellent movie. You know, scripts do amazing things. When you got somebody like Jared Leto attached, you know, he has that cool, creepy thing going on that he could certainly bring to the role. I'm not saying that he won't do a fantastic job overall. But sometimes you get one thing that goes wrong and something that I would definitely consider this a risky project. And then something that is a risky project suddenly goes off the rails because one little thing didn't go didn't go right, and I feel like this is not a risk that Sony needs to take, and the reward for this pretty minimal, if you ask me, because it's not like you're really going to catch lightning in a bottle, and all of a sudden this is a gigantic success. You could absolutely do that with Venom. I don't see any way, shape, or form it's going to happen with Morbius Living Vampire, but maybe I'll be wrong. Speaking of things that don't seem like a good idea, and this one made me legitimately laugh out loud. Collider reports that Indiana Jones 5, yet another sequel we didn't ask for, is going to be getting the solo A Star Wars Story writer. Now, before you get on my case, let me give you the details. Jonathan Kasdan is going to replace David Kep, who it was originally writing the script. Now, we're not sure how much of the script is actually going to be changed by Kasdan, but we do know the Variety is reporting that the movie is going to be pushed back because of script issues. So this sounds like almost a total teardown and redo. Now, Kasdan does also have freaks and geeks to his credit, so there, there is that. But at the same time, what did we just talk about last week? Solo A Star Wars Story didn't go as successful as Disney wanted it to and Lucasfilms wanted it to, so it may or may not, depending on the report that you believe, have shelved all other Star Wars spinoff movies after this because they're a little bit shy of what might happen down the road with these movies. And now you go ahead and you get one of the writers from that very movie that you kind of feel like has doomed everything and bring him over to the Indiana Jones franchise to give it another go. I know that Solo, a Star Wars story, didn't fail because of the script. But it seems like, again, depending on what report you believe, that Disney and Lucasfilms feels like Solo, a Star Wars story is almost a toxic type of thing at this point, right? That is where it all went wrong, right? The the solo Star Wars story didn't make billions upon billions of dollars, so that is considered a failure. You set yourself a high bar, and that's where you're at. Now, I know the bar is not going to be as high for an Indiana Jones movie that will probably be the last Indiana Jones movie ever, because I can't imagine that this is going to be hugely successful. Again, no disrespect to Harrison Ford or anybody involved in the project. It's just that, look what happened the last time. You tried to do a Indiana Jones sequel after waiting for decades. It didn't go well. And this just doesn't seem like no matter what they do is going to go well. If you want to reboot the thing, just reboot the thing. You don't really need Harrison Ford to do that. If you want to do more Indiana Jones movies, scrap it and start over if you really, really have to use this franchise.
I just don't know that this is a good idea. I mean, you want to tear down the script and write it all over again. I'm not sure you could write anything that makes this make sense for me. I love Indiana Jones. I really, really do. But I love the films that I started loving the franchise because of. You don't need to give me any more. We are obsessed now with giving fans more of stuff that they don't really need more of just to try and make money and revive a franchise that hasn't been going and and certainly hasn't been running on all cylinders for a long, long time. And I think we are really starting to get to the point where we are begging for something new. And I really hope at some point that's what we're going to get. This does have my interest, though. Halo has been ordered finally to series by Showtime, according to Deadline. And I'll tell you why I say finally here in just a second. Looks like we are going to get 10 episodes out of this, and Kyle Killen is going to be serving as the writer and the showrunner. Of course, he was with Awake. Rupert Wyatt, who is going to be the executive producer and director of several episodes. He, of course, attached to Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And then, of course, Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment going to be involved as well. Now, production is expected to begin in early 2019. Now, the reason I say finally is because, remember... This was all supposed to happen back in 2013 and even 2014. Xbox Entertainment announced all this original programming that they were going to do. Remember, IDW was involved in that as well. They were going to have some IDW shows that were going to be a part of that too, like Winter World. And that just never happened because Xbox Entertainment Studios shut down almost before it even began. But then in 2014, we actually did get Halo Nightfall, which didn't exactly go so well. So now here we are, fast forward to 2019, and we are finally going to get Halo on Showtime. I'm glad it's going to a pay cable service, because then that means gloves are off. You can kind of do whatever you want with this, right? There's no limits on rating or anything like that. So I think that that's a good call. There's one name, though, from Halo Nightfall that I think could be interesting in this whole thing, and that's Mike Coulter. Remember, he was in the Halo Nightfall movie. Now, that's the name that stuck out to me the most because it seems like he has the most star power coming out of that so far. I'm not saying he's going to come back and play that same character. I'm not even saying he's going to be available for this in 2019 because of how great Luke Cage season two is, has been. I can't imagine that the Luke Cage series is going to be going anywhere anytime soon. But if Michael, if Mike Coulter can find the time and they do decide to go with like the master chief as the main character in this series or whatever direction they decide to go to, you bring in a guy like that instant credibility right there. And you're going to get people to watch more so now for Mike Coulter than back in 2014, because you've seen how great he's done in the Defenders, and Jessica Jones, and of course in Luke Cage. He's made a name for himself now, and a name that people are going to want to follow. So if you're going to try and drag through another audience and bring them into a Halo series, not just the video game fan audience, but if you want to draw others in as well and get that Marvel audience, you could grab a guy like that. I think that that would really, really be a good move for this Halo series. And let's face it, Mike Coulter, he's a charming dude. He could play that tough role well. And I think that he'd be a great addition to the cast if they decide to go that route. And he's already kind of familiar with the source material, having worked on Nightfall, although maybe you want him to forget that after the way that went. Not his fault. But, I mean, we don't really know yet. I hate to speculate on casting this early, but that just kind of stuck out for me from the last Halo, any live-action Halo that we got. So let me know what you think. Who would you cast as the lead 
in a Halo series. You can tweet the show at Down and Nerdy 757. Be very curious to see what you would think about this. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be sitting down with Mark Russell, who's the writer for Judge Dredd Under Siege for IDW. We'll dive into that next on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, this is Tom Waltz. I'm the senior staff writer and editor at IDW Publishing and also a writer for TMNT at IDW. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Any chance I can get to talk about Judge Dredd on the Down and Nerdy podcast, I am going to take it. So, you know, I'm so excited to talk to this guy who we actually met back in January. It's writer Mark Russell. Mark, how you doing? Hey, doing good. Now, I wanted to ask you about this before. I'm so I'm glad I get a chance to ask you about it. Now, your first venture into comics was actually with God is Disappointed in You from Top Shelf, which is kind of an imprint of IDW. So what do you feel like is the best thing about writing for a publisher like IDW as a whole, as you, especially as you move onto a licensed property here like Judge Dredd? Well, I like the fact that they, they really take their time and curate properties. They're not just throwing out garbage and licensing it. They're really interested in making something unique and, and sort of quality with the, the property that they're, they're working on. And that's an approach that's always sort of attracted me to, to top shelf on IDW. So now you're certainly no stranger to working with characters that have a fan base and a ton of issues under their belt. So I was wondering, was there something with Judge Dredd, like one thing that you thought about the character where you said to yourself, I have to make sure this is authentic? It wasn't so much the character, it was more the world. I really wanted to make sure that I I got Mega City 1 right, because Mega City 1 is one of the best dystopias in, in pop culture and in fiction ever created. And frankly, the the closer we get to it, more likely that sort of future seems to become for us. I hear that. Now, Judge Dredd's always seen, especially in Mega City 1 itself, is such a serious character, but you actually managed to add some humor into this book, or at least I kind of felt like there was some humor in there from my perspective in Under Siege. So is that something that you kind of wanted to add into this series, or was that kind of a happy accident? Yeah, it's definitely something I wanted to add into the series. And, you know, I, and there's a few things funnier than somebody who takes themselves that seriously. So I wanted the humor not to be like Judge Dredd cracking jokes or breaking character, but more just about how he is the living embodiment of this institution that really doesn't serve most people in Mega City One, but he takes it so seriously that he's oblivious to, to how badly the institutions are serving the people of Mega City One. So, in a way, to me, that I, I I think he was. I'm not making fun of Judge Dredd, and he I'm, I'm not using him to sort of be the the funny guy. Uh, he's still the straight man in the series. But he is the sort of temple around which a lot of the humor and satire revolves. I think you're right, though. It's that approach, and that's kind of what what strikes me as funny about him in this series, too, is that I'm reading a line that you've written. I'm like, that's not really supposed to be funny necessarily, but it is to me. Yeah, a lot of things become funny, and you put them in this context of being in this sort of really dire situation. I think one thing that's also kind of funny is the people that, that live in dystopias tend not to realize they live in dystopia. Right. You can have all these sort of cool background details. You know, like there's a store called the Kidney Hut where people go to sell their kidneys. And to us, that's funny, but it's, it's largely funny because the people there, it's completely normal. To them, it's like, you know, no, no different than going to like a dollar store or something. Right, exactly. Now, a little bit of a special uh, spoiler for issue one, if, if you haven't read it yet. Now, we see Judge Dredd and Beanie have to work with the mayor and his gang to stop the mutant threat that's on the Patrick Swayze block. Now, it's obvious that Dredd would have a huge problem 
with that from the get-go. So how great was it to kind of add that kind of conflict into the story, and how much will that play a role in the story going forward? It really is the centerpiece of the story going forward. The mayor is the leader of the criminal gang who runs the uh, the Patrick Swayze block, but he really he's called the mayor largely because when the when the Swayze block was abandoned by the government of Mega City One, it was him and his his gang that really kind of like took over and made sure that everyone was taken care of and that they they were protected. He became the police force, the welfare department. He became all of that stuff for for the city block. And as such, he's incredibly respected within the city block. And that's why they gave him the, the name the mayor. But it largely, I wanted this series to be about how, unlike most judgment series, where you know the citizens are, his interactions with the citizens is like a game of whack-a-mole. He just, they just kind of pop, whoever pops up, he just whacks them down. Yep. I wanted this to be one where he kind of teams up with the citizens he's supposed to be protecting. And they, they have like a, you know, some agency, they act in their own defense. I wanted to show more of the heroism of everyday people and not just the, the judges who come in and arrest and beat them down. Now, we not only have the mutants, but we saw a little bit of their leader in the first issue named Talleyrand, and I feel like we really barely scratched the surface on just who he is in the first issue. So what can you tell us about him and how much of a threat he truly is? He is, like all, I think, all really good villains, and I tried to make him a really good villain. He is somebody who doesn't see himself as a villain. He's somebody who sees himself as a good guy, and he's somebody who sees himself as, as having like a plan to make the world a better place but it all is kind of predicated upon this this one act of terrorism that he needs to perform in Mega City 1. He's made this sort of Faustian bargain, I'll do one horrible thing, and then uh, life will get better. So he becomes a major part of the story going forward. Issue number one, he just kind of gets introduced almost you know indirectly because we just hear about him. We don't really get to see him act that much. But he really becomes a big part of the story. And a lot of it is just about like how when you you shut people out and you keep them out of uh, society, they'll find a way in. So you better find a way to incorporate people peacefully or they will kind of fight their way in and, and it won't be good for anybody. Talking to writer Mark Russell of Judge Dredd Under Siege, of course, the first issue available now. Issue two actually available on the 4th of July this coming week, actually. Now, Mark, Batman may have his Batmobile, but one of the things I love that you did in Under Siege is that you highlighted how amazing and versatile that the Lawmaster actually is. So do you think that that it has been an overlooked kind of vehicle over the years in comics in general? Because I think it's clearly one of the most badass vehicles in comic books. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, to me, it's like it's really underutilized because you have a motorcycle that can drive itself, it's equipped with weapons, and has a, has a computer, and, and you know, in in this like a certain amount of artificial intelligence. So basically, it's like it's like an armed Siri on wheels, and it's like that's basically another judge. And I'm I'm amazed that they don't use that more. Like the Lawmaster, kind of like in Star Trek, how the saucer section could split off from the ship mm-hmm. and they become two ships for a little while. That's the way it seems like if you were a judge in Mega City One, you can sort of like split off from your lawmaster and, you, and both of you be doing, performing separate tasks at the same time. And so I really wanted to sort of like take that technology seriously incorporated in the story. It was so refreshing to me, man, because I can't think of a book where, where, that, where, where that vehicle was used so often. So I thought it was really cool to do on your part. Thanks. Yeah, it, it comes into play later on, too. Oh, nice. That's a tease. I like that. Now, Dread has proven 
time and time again in every story that he is, in fact, the law. So I can't help but wonder how he would handle certain other situations. So let's do this. If you could put Judge Dredd at any point in history as a man of the law and with the technology of that era, where would you put him and why? I think I would uh, maybe make him a soccer referee. uh, (laughs) Maybe have the World Cup. Uh, I would like to see that. I would like to see him like right today as a World Cup referee. I think that would be pretty cool. That would work so well, especially with the way the World Cup's been going this year. Yeah, I would I would pay to see that. I would pay to see just for the refereeing, which I've never done before. Your sentence, yellow card. <laughs> now, Mark, another thing that's great about Under Siege is that, you, is that you have, in my opinion, one of the best artists in the business right now working with you and Max Dunbar. So talk about what it's like working with him and what he brings to the table in a book like this. Yeah, Max has been great. I mean, just really professional. And also, he seems to really sort of capture that sense of urban loneliness and despair that I, that I think is so critical to, like, a, a Judge Dredd comic. It, it, it reminds me, when I see the, the inks, it reminds me of, like, Blade Runner, just how, yeah. you know, it's how developed this city is and how, like, it's such a complete world. But at the same time, it's like, you know, like, not to mix metaphors, but it's like an Edward Hopper painting where it's just this urban loneliness. There's all these people alone together, and it really just sort of makes it feel even more bleak. Absolutely. Now, you were mentioning Mega City 1 earlier. Now, we know that we're actually getting a Judge Dredd TV series at some point called Mega City 1, so what would you like to see from that show, and what is something that you would pitch if you were in the writer's room? If I could, if I could pitch myself in the writers' room, I would say what you need to do is to have a lot of like futuristic businesses and billboards for businesses that that would make sense in the future that we can see coming now, but that don't exist in Mega City One. You know, sort of like my my kidney hut idea, or you know, like like a synthetic meat businesses. I would just like to see really cool sort of like background details that that kind of flesh out the way people live in the you know the 21st century like that so if the makers of mega city one are listening i mean mark's got ideas i'm just saying sounds like good ones to me yeah no i I think that you really make a place come to life more sort of background details more you get a sense of how people really live and i would just love to write some of these crazy like billboards and advertisements for for businesses that that are around in the 21st century mega city one that, that would make it fun, so I totally agree with you on that. Now, Mark, before I let you go, we all know that IDW has been doing a lot with their Hasbro properties lately over the years since actually jumping on board with Hasbro. So if you could get into one of those realms, which character or set of characters would you like to write the most? Uh, I don't really have a good answer to that, so I'm, I'm going to say uh, My Little Pony. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, is that Hasbro? Can I do a My Little Pony Judge Dredd crossover? That would be awesome. As a matter of fact, I think you should get Mitch Garrett's for that because he talks about wanting to do such less serious books after working with Tom King. So I think uh, yeah. Mark Russell and Mitch Garrett's My Little Pony book would be awesome. Yeah, maybe uh, the My Little Pony uh, like replaces the Lawmaster. <laughs> Judge Dredd riding My Little Pony. Wow. Now there's a crossover I never thought that we would even talk about. Heard it here first. Oh, wow. Well, Judge Dredd Under Siege number one is available now at your local comic book shops and digital retailers. Make sure you're getting issue two as well, which is going to be coming out this coming week. It's Mark Russell, writer extraordinaire. Thank you so much for joining me this week. All right. Thanks a lot. Talking to Mark Russell, it seemed like he really wanted to not only capture the essence of who Judge Dredd really was, but also, you know, do some stuff that was a little different with the character than we've seen before. And, you know, it's all about perspective. And I think that that was one of the things 
that I took away from talking with him is that it's all about how you perceive that character and how certain lines are being delivered. And that's why I found some of them funny and then some of them just classic dread. And then I'm so glad that he felt the same way about the lawmaster that I did because I love that that was a huge part of this issue. So make sure you're getting Judge Dread under siege. Make sure you have it in your poll box and pick up the first issue if you haven't already. Second issue going to be coming out on the 4th of July. That's this coming July 4th. And then the subsequent issues after that. You might even be able to, if you're going to San Diego Comic-Con 2018, first of all, we'll see you there. Second of all, I'm sure you can stop by the IDW booth and get yourself some issues of that there as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Of course, thank you again to Mark Russell for joining me this week to talk about Judge Dredd Under Siege. Follow us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram, not only for the ability to listen to the show and see what we've got going on and sharing nerd news with you, but... That's where a lot of our coverage of San Diego Comic-Con 2018 is going to be taking place. So make sure you're following us on social media and keep up with our new website, downandnerdypodcast.com. It's redesigned with a whole bunch of new features on there for you. Really hope you're enjoying that, reading some of the articles that I have coming up there. And even more comic book reviews now can be found at downandnerdypodcast.com. Remember, though, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.